I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Hadn't the music been great this morning? Cindy, thanks for the patriotic number you started us off with. Preaching through the book of Matthew, and we are at the Sermon on the Mount, and we had not gotten through the Sermon on the Mount yet. We're still in chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7. So while you're finding Matthew 5, 17, let me ask you something. You ever tried to do something that was impossible? You, you, you thought, I, I think I can do this, and you find out I can't really do that? Or have you ever been around people that claim to have done something that you know is impossible? I had a kid in my youth group, the church I served in Texas, who uh, he always was trying to get attention, so he would always tell stories. And you knew a lie was coming when he started with the words, one time. I was in my office picking a splinter out of my finger, and he saw me doing it, and he said, one time, and I thought, here it comes. So one time I had a splinter in my finger, and I squeezed it, and it shot across the room. And I didn't say enough to build him up, so he, he kept embellishing. It shot across the room and stuck in my brother Steve. I thought, that's incredible. We could use that in warfare, you know, poison darts out of your finger. Why is it that we try things that are impossible? I want to talk to you this morning about something that's impossible only one person could do. Things that are impossible, people claiming that. There was a song a few years ago, I Believe I Can Fly. Do you ever remember that song? Every time I heard it, I thought, I don't believe you can fly. I believe I can soar. I thought, you're going to be sore. And some people, well, you can get on a plane. You better get in a plane if you're going to fly. Getting on it, you're going to fall off. It's not going to be a pretty ending. So I want to talk to you about something that's impossible this morning, and that is fulfilling the law, and that is exactly what Jesus did. So let me read verses 17 through 20 to start with of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. This is Jesus speaking. Let me just give you context. We saw at the end of chapter 4 that Jesus had been traveling around the region, predominantly around the Sea of Galilee. He had been healing people. In fact, it said they were bringing people to him to be healed, and he healed every sickness and disease. And so when that word gets out, people are coming from miles away, even beyond where he had physically walked himself. And he sees the crowd coming, and it said he sat down and talked. And we see chapters 5, 6, and 7, this great Sermon on the Mount. Let me read verses 17 through 20. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now keep in mind, in the crowd that he's speaking to, probably by this point thousands of people are listening to him. Some of them were the religious leaders. He's right in their face with truth. But if they weren't religious leaders, they were people who had been impacted and taught by the religious leaders. So they had in their mind that what they're teaching us is right, and Jesus is turning everything upside down. In fact, probably they were even saying, what Jesus is teaching is annulling the commandments. And so Jesus says right off the top, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. The word abolish means to demolish or disregard. It would be the picture of somebody getting a bulldozer and running through a building and just knocking everything down. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And there's a big difference. The law of the Old Testament, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. How many are in the Ten Commandments? Well, there were ten. 
So part of that 613 are the Ten Commandments. Those are the ones we know about. But God gave them other laws. Some of them were dietary laws. Some of them were relationship issue laws. So they were of God. They were given by God. The problem is the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees had added on to the law, had made them burdensome. Things like this, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. They said, well, we gotta, we got to create some rules to help them honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. How far can you go and how much can you carry on the Sabbath? So some of the things they would teach them was this. You could carry enough food as long as it didn't weigh more than a fig. I don't know about you, but you're not going to eat much if all you got something that weighs about as much as a fig. You can have enough milk for the journey for one swallow. You can have enough water to make salve. And so Jesus is teaching them, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. You remember what Jesus did about the Sabbath? There's times he healed people on the Sabbath. Do you remember that? Was he breaking the Sabbath? No, because what he said was the Sabbath wasn't made for man, or man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath benefits man. God says six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. God created the earth in six days. On the seventh day he rested, and that's the model, the pattern of the Sabbath that we've been given. So he hasn't come to abolish, but to fulfill, literally to complete the law, to level it up, to cram it full. is a term used of fishing. If you cast your nets and you bring them back in and they were full, overflowing with fish, that was what the word he's using to fulfill. So he, and he, to make it more pointed, he says, I'm telling you this, until heaven and earth pass away, not one of the smallest strokes of the Hebrew or Greek alphabet, not one small point in the law is going to pass away. They're all going to be fulfilled. In fact, he gives a, a, a warning. Anyone who annuls one of these commandments is going to be last in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who teaches others to do the same. Here's the scary thing. They weren't teaching them necessarily with their words. They were teaching them with their actions. And Jesus is saying, if you're teaching people to annul or avoid the law, you're going to, be, you're going to miss the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verse 6, Jesus is making a point, and he brings a little child and stands him in front of the people, and he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So Jesus is warning against teaching by word or action to annul or void the law that he's come to fulfill. I love the word heavy millstone. Is there such a thing as a light millstone? (laughs) I think all millstones are heavy. But Jesus said it would be better for you that you didn't teach that. It would have been better that you were drowned in the sea with a heavy millstone around your neck, never to float to the top. You'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the the kingdom of heaven. Then we get to verse 20. And he makes a, a startling statement. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There were probably scribes and Pharisees listening to what Jesus said. But he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that, unless your relationship with the Lord, unless your life surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you had gone to one of the Pharisees and said, are you going to spend eternity in heaven? What would they have said? Oh, absolutely. Why? Because we've kept the law. The scribes were the ones who who were not only the keepers of the law, but the legal experts on the law to explain it to people. And the Pharisees were the most religious. The Pharisees and Sadducees, he doesn't talk about Sadducees here, he talks about the Pharisees, but they were the religious of the religious. Paul himself gave his resume in Philippians. He says, you know what? If, If I could put confidence in the fact that I'm a Jew, I'm more so than just about anybody because I was a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, a Jew among Jews, circumcised the eighth day. 
all these things. And, but he finally says, you know what? That righteousness is nothing. In fact, I count it now as rubbish it surpass, because of the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ. So coming to faith in Christ surpasses all of that. So Paul, uh, Matt, Jesus in Matthew says, unless your righteousness surpasses, the word surpasses means to outdo. It means more in quantity or quality. It was actually used of a river that surpassed it bank, its banks if it flooded. So the righteousness that God's calling for is one that would surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, and it only comes from one place. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I thought about it this week. So what, what was it about the scribes' righteousness that was wrong? Well, three thoughts. One, it was external. The scribes, the Pharisees, were way more concerned with what things looked like on the outside. Jesus on one occasion calls them whitewashed sepulchers. What does that mean? Real pretty graves. Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness is more than just what it looks like on the outside, unless it penetrates to the heart, that's what God's interested in. Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside may become clean also. So the Pharisees were just interested in what things looked like on the outside. Jesus is, look, is more interested in what things look like on the inside. Jesus is interested in your heart. He'll take care, care of cleaning up the rest of it once your heart is totally his. So it was just external. Second thing is it was incomplete. Your heart hadn't changed. You can modify behavior temporarily, but if your heart hasn't changed, you haven't changed. And your righteousness is more like that of the Pharisees. It was also self-centered. So it was external. It was incomplete. It was also self-centered. The Pharisees were very proud of their religion. The Bible says that when they gave offerings, would bring money to the temple. They'd blow a trumpet to acknowledge what they were doing. Self-centered. They wanted credit for it. They, were, they thought they were godly. They thought they were right with God. And they thought everybody else wasn't. So unless your righteousness surpasses that, for the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus gives the rest of this chapter, he gives some laws. He gives some examples of what he's talking about. In fact, he gives six. He says, you have heard, and throughout this passage you'll say, you've heard it said or you have heard from ancient times. He talks about murder, adultery, divorce, making vows, seeking revenge, or how you treat your enemies. Let's just focus on one today. He said, you have heard it said you should not commit a murder. Well, where do you hear that first? That's the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. So Jesus said, you've heard it taught. In fact, they've added on to that, you'll be liable to the court. In other words, you'll be brought up before the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and Sadducees, if you commit murder. But I say, so Jesus six times in this passage says, you've heard this, but I say. And the people that he's saying, you've heard it from, were in the crowd listening. In fact, everybody either was one of the teachers of this or had been impacted by the ones who had taught that. Jesus said, I say, anyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Why does he say that? Jesus is saying there's more than just murder here. There's your heart. So if your mind and your heart is so angry that you want to kill somebody, even if you don't kill them, you've, you've committed sin in your heart anyway. Anybody? Don't raise your hand. Anybody ever been that angry? I don't think I've ever been angry enough to kill somebody, but I've been angry enough to never forgive them. 
my brother, five years older than me, used to abuse me as a kid. And you wouldn't have used the word abuse back then. But my brother did several things. He loosened my teeth one night while my parents were out to dinner. And I said, my tooth's loose. He said, when mom and dad get home, tell them you slipped on the golf ball. So, so I'm, I'm in the kitchen. I said, oops, a golf ball. How did that get here? I don't, I don't even remember. I think I didn't even tell him about it. He didn't like the way I played cowboys and Indians as a, as a little boy. So he would use a real BB gun. You know, if he shot me and I didn't fall down, he said, I'm going to make sure he knows I've shot him now. And things like that that he did, I would think, I will never forgive him. When he's 90 years old and I'm 85 years old, he's in a wheelchair and I've got a crutch. I'm going to make a note to hit him in the head with my crutch. I'm going to get revenge. And then you read verses like in the Gospels that says, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. Or if you harbor bitterness and anger within your own heart, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So you realize, wait a minute, I've got to forgive because God's already forgiven me way more than I'm ever going to have to forgive anybody, including my brother. Now, our relationship's good now. He's still alive. He's still five years older than me. It's funny how that works. And he treats me well. But three, three phases of this example, he said, anyone who is angry, because that's where murder starts, should be guilty. Anyone who says to his brother, you good for nothing. In other words, you're slandering your brother. And this is not your physical, biological brother. This is the people around you. He's talking pr- predominantly to Jews here, but there were also Gentiles there. So he's saying the way you treat people around you If you talk bad about them, that's what the soldiers did to Jesus. While Jesus was dying on the cross, they mocked him, made fun of him, accused him, encouraged him to come down off the cross to prove that he was God. So anyone who says to his brother, you're good for nothing, will be guilty and subject to the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, the word is moros, literally where we get the word moron from, stupid or dull, same as if you're saying you're stupid and godless then you're guilty enough for the fiery hell. I remember hearing the word raka. I think some translations translate raka. And I said, well, I can call you a fool as long as I don't use the word raka because that's what Jesus said. No, that's missing the point. The point is, if we harbor angerness in our heart, if we harbor bitterness, if we are talking about people and calling them names, you haven't necessarily physically murdered them, but Jesus said that's a sin. In fact, he says you're guilty enough for the fiery hell. So my point is, learn to deal with anger and bitterness, and he's going to give a great illustration here in a minute. But if there's something between you and a brother or sister in the Lord or somebody, your neighbor, somebody that you know, learn to forgive. Even if they don't ask forgiveness, learn to forgive. I've said this before, but I, someone told me one time, the way you know you've forgiven someone is when you can treat them as if it never happened. And it takes time sometimes for that to happen. You have to pray sometimes, God, please allow me to see them the way you do. Because right now, I'm just mad. And when you get mad, you want to get revenge. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So what rescues you from hell? Here's here's what would make you guilty of hell. The only thing that rescues you from hell is Jesus. In fact, we're talking about the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. The only one who lived that kind of life was Jesus. The only way I have that applied to my life is if I make an exchange with Christ. I take my worthless deeds and exchange them for his perfect holiness and righteousness. And he makes an application. The last couple of verses, 23 through 24. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. 
But Jesus gives a great application of the passage and, and the point he's making. He says, therefore, that refers back to the point he's just made. Here's how we're going to treat each other. So let me give you an example. Jesus saying, if you're bringing your offering to the altar, what's he talking about? He's talking about a sacrifice. You're bringing an animal to the priest, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Isn't it interesting he doesn't say you've got something against him or her? He says, if you know they've got something against you, leave your animal, leave your offering, leave your sacrifice. And why do you think you remembered it anyway? He said, if you remember while you're in the process of making an offering, you're in worship. Bringing sacrifices was part of worship. You're in worship and you remember. Why do you think he remembered? It's because God convicted him. God reminded him. That ought to happen to us regularly in worship, not just during the singing worship, but in the preaching worship. Everything we've done here this morning, we're worshiping God as we serve him. So Jesus says, if you're bringing the lamb to be offered so that you can become right with God, that's less important than you going and being right with your man and then come back and get right with God. I don't want to get up in your business, but I want to ask you, does that ever happen to you in worship? Maybe while you're standing singing, maybe while you're sitting praying, or maybe during the preaching of the Word of God, God taps you on the heart. God reminds you of something you either need to do or quit doing. Don't raise your hand. But that happens, right? I've seen the white knuckles on the pews, people just sitting there clinging, thinking if they'll just hurry up and end the service, I won't have to deal with this. No, you're going to have to deal with it. I'm going to pray at the end of the service that whatever God's convicted you of here, you won't be able to sleep tonight until you deal with it. But Jesus says, if you're making an offering, leave the offering. Go be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Isaiah 6, or excuse me, Isaiah 1, these are on the screen, verses 11 and then 16 through 17. Look how important this is to God. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Wash yourself, verse 16. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from the sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. What's God saying? God's the one who told us to bring offerings for sacrifice. But what he's saying is, if you're bringing them with bitterness in your heart, if you're bringing them with uncleanness, if you're bringing them with sin in your life, then you need to deal with the sin in your life. You need to deal with the brother or sister that you're estranged from and then come and bring the offering. Settle the rift with your brother before you worry about the rift with God. How do we do that? I've had people tell me, I've gone to this person. I've asked forgiveness. Then I would direct you to Romans 12, 18. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What does that mean? Once you've done everything you can do, you can only do what God tells you to do, right? You're not responsible for whether they receive your apology whether they offer you forgiveness or whether they receive your forgiveness. You're responsible for doing what God's called you to do. So if God's put somebody on your mind this morning that you need to go to and ask forgiveness or you need to go and offer forgiveness, do it. And I've had people say, well, it won't do any good. No, it will do good. It will be obedient to Christ. And you don't know what God, how God may use that in their life. So some application points as we close this morning. Four things. It's about worship. Jesus has been teaching them about worship. Worship brings you into God's presence. It may be that this week you haven't had time to just stop a minute and allow God to speak to you, but it may be happening this very morning. And it doesn't have to be Sunday morning at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. It could be Tuesday morning when you open your Bible and worship God. He will speak. So second thing is listen. God speaks. 
I've had people, I, I used to think anytime something like that happened, it was interrupting me. And what I've learned is a dull pencil is better than a sharp mind. If God's speaking to me during my time of worship, write it down. Put it in your phone. Make a note of it so you can continue with worship and then deal with what God's brought to your attention to deal with. Number three, obey what he says. If God's laid on your heart something you need to do or something you need to quit doing, make a commitment right then to obey. Because last, obedience is an act of worship. God was saying, don't bring your sacrifices to me if you're not being obedient. Don't try to make it look like on the outside that everything's good because you've gone through religious motion. But be right with your brother. Don't commit murder by hating them in your heart. So your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the only way that happens is the one who lived a perfect, righteous life, and that is Jesus. I come to Jesus just as I am. I don't clean my act up because I can't. It's impossible. I'm tired of doing those things that are impossible. Do what's possible, and that is bring it to Jesus. Allow him to forgive you, cleanse you, be your Lord and Savior. Allow his righteousness to be applied to you so that when you face God someday, he sees the righteousness of Christ and not your filthiness. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me.